This morning, this morning we are going to begin a brand new sermon series. We are going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Um, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, open up. It's in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. As you're getting there, um, I want to tell you why I want to be in Nehemiah. There's a lot of things that we can learn from Nehemiah. Um, this book is about building something. Specifically for Nehemiah, it's about building the wall of Jerusalem. It's about building something new. This book is about how God calls regular people into leadership. He calls people who might not think that they're leaders into being part of something bigger than themselves. He calls them to do great things. This is a book about seeing something new grow. Something that seemed overwhelming at the time, but little by little, pieces are put in place. Brick by brick, a wall is built. It's a book that reminds us that God has put each of us here in specific places, in specific roles, to further his kingdom in this neighborhood and in this city. So now that you guys are all at Nehemiah, um, go ahead and keep your finger there, because we've got a little bit of background work to do before we can actually get to Nehemiah, because I want you to understand the grasp, the weight of what's going on as we jump into chapter 1. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in to Nehemiah. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are good, and you are good all the time. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and worship you and sing praises about how good and faithful you are. Lord, as we enter into this book, as we enter into this series in Nehemiah, Lord, I pray that you're, you have a message for us. You have a message for CF in this book, and I pray that you illuminate that to us, that we're quiet enough to hear your words, we're quiet enough, and we're bold enough to take the actions that you call us to take. God, we pray that we learn how to be faithful leaders and faithful stewards of what you have given us as we study this book. Lord, I pray for this city as it is a fallen city that's full of sin and broken hearts. God, I pray that you help us to be a light in this city. And not just us, but churches around this city that we can band together on Sunday mornings and proclaim that Jesus is good, that he rose from the dead, and there is life to be lived because of that. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to do a little bit of background to get us up to Nehemiah. I'm going to start with um, God's people, the Israelites. They're in captivity in Egypt. Yes, we're going back that far. God's people are in Egypt. God calls them out of slavery. He has Moses lead them. They go through the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They get to right up to the promised land, right to this place that God said is flowing with milk and honey. I am going to give you this land. This is for you, my people. They get right up to the line. And then everybody starts doubting God. They start freaking out and thinking, the people that are there right now are giants. There's no way we could possibly overtake them. Even though God sent the plagues, parted the Red Sea, had gave them food from the sky, had a pillar of fire, all of these different things, and in a very short amount of time, God said, look, I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you. Over and over again, they get right up to the line of the promised land, and they freak out and they start doubting God. They stop trusting his goodness. And so God says, all right, take a walk. And they wander the desert for 40 years. That whole generation of people dies off. 40 years later, Joshua leads them right up to that same line, a new generation of God's people. They go into the promised land, into Canaan, and they take it over. And this is God's people in God's place. This is where they are supposed to be. This is the place that God has set aside for them. And everything's good, and they live, and they're happy, and they're taken care of, and everything's great. And then the people start looking around, and they see all these different nations that have kings. 
Israel doesn't have a king. They want a king because they want to be like everybody else. They stop trusting that God is going to take care of them. It's a pattern over and over again. They don't trust that God is going to lead them, so they want a king. So God sends them a king. He sends them Saul. To be a king back then, you need three things. You need to be tall, good-looking, have money. Saul fit the bill. Saul is a dude, and he becomes king. That's basically all we know about Saul when he takes over. And Saul's relationship with God is kind of rocky at first, and he starts to develop a relationship with God, and God blesses him and blesses the nation. But over time, Saul begins to think, well, I'm the king. I'm in charge. I know what's best. I'm the most powerful. And he starts to doubt God. And so God calls in a new king. He calls David. Right? We know David he killed Goliath, man after God's own heart, fought a bear with his bare hands. David is the new king. And David becomes the best king Israel ever has. There is peace throughout the land. Because who's going to mess with the dude who killed the bear with his bare hands? Nobody. David is in control and there's peace. He dies, his son takes over. His son is Solomon. Solomon, the wisest man, the smartest man, the richest man to ever live. Again, peace throughout the land for generations. Solomon dies and now things get kind of messy. Solomon's kids... The boys split the kingdom, basically, and it's kind of a civil war. And so Israel, which is one nation, becomes two. We have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. This doesn't end well. Over the course of a lot of bad leadership, a lot of bad kings, both of these different nations get taken over. The north gets taken over first, and all the Israelites, all the Jews, all God's chosen people who are in the place they are supposed to be, get scattered all over the place. And then about 140-ish years later, the south, same thing happens in the south. They get taken over, scattered all over the place. God's people, his plan is to have them in a certain place that he provided for them. And because they didn't trust him, now they're scattered all over the place. And these two foreign nations are living in the place where God chose his people to be. Until this little country called Persia shows up, and they wipe everybody out. And now the Persians are in charge. And it's under King Cyrus that he says, you know what, if you are a Jew, if you are an Israelite, you can go back to Jerusalem, the home city, the, the city that, that's God's city. You can go back there and you can rebuild your temple that was destroyed. Solomon got to build the temple when he was king and it was destroyed when Judah got conquered. But King Cyrus says, you know what, you can go back, you can rebuild your temple. You can go and dwell where you are supposed to be. I want there to be peace. And so the Israelites start to trickle back into Jerusalem. Seventy years later, seventy years later, is where we're at in Nehemiah. The Persians are still in control. And what we're going to learn is that Jerusalem is still not doing great. So read along with me in Nehemiah 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you. Go ahead and take that if you don't own a Bible. The words are also going to be on the screen. Um, so go ahead and follow along. So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord, before the God of heaven. So let's stop right there. Why does this matter? It's some walls and some gates. What's the big deal? We don't really, this doesn't necessarily play for us because we don't live in a world that's protected by walls and gates. Back then, you have your city, and around your city, you have walls and gates. So you can regulate who's coming in, who's coming out. It's a way, it's a defense mechanism. It's a way to keep your city protected, okay? Think about it this way. Think about your house. Now think about your house and take all of the windows and open up all the windows. What's going to start happening? Animals are going to start getting in. Weather's going to start getting in. You can't control any. I mean, it's, it's going to get kind of, kind of nasty, right? Now take away the doors. Now more animals are getting in, bigger animals. People can come in. Now take away your outer walls. Now you're just a bunch of rooms and just some stuff sitting. Anybody can come, do whatever they want. There's no way to regulate. There's no way to protect yourself. That is what's going on here. Jerusalem, they have been in the city for 70 years, and they haven't rebuilt the wall. It's chaos. It's like a land without law and order. It's like, for those of you who are here, it's like when the Bulls would win championships in the 90s. Remember those nights when they would clinch, and it was just chaos, and people are flipping cars and setting fire? Which, it's going to be 10 times that when the Cubs win the World Series. Go Cubs, go. <laughs> it was chaos and anarchy. There's no protection for them. And I think it's important that he says, there's great trouble, there's great shame. They feel like they want to do something. They want to move. They want to see something grow. But this job, building these walls, building walls that are going to protect an entire city, that's a big job. And it was probably an overwhelming project for them. I mean, think about the amount of effort and resources and time and energy that was going to take to rebuild these walls. I mean, it's easy for us to look back and say, well, you know, they could have hired contractors. They could have, you know, banded together and made it happen. Hindsight's 20-20, right? It's a lot easier to look back and say, well, they could have done this, that, and the other thing. But think about our own lives for a second. Think about when you're in the midst of an issue, when you're in the midst of a situation or a challenge, and you're just so overwhelmed at the very possibility of getting anything done, you just kind of learn to live amongst the rubble. You kind of learn to teach yourself, you know what, that's just the way it is. I'm one person, what am I going to do? I got so many other things to worry about, I can't focus on one thing at a time. I got to try and hit everything all at once. When I get overwhelmed, when I get just too bombarded with different things, I do one of two things. I will either sleep or I will just like zone out on the internet. And I'll just spend hours clicking around and get nothing done. Basically, my internal, my, my reaction to being overwhelmed is I just want to avoid it. I don't want to know that there's stuff. I know that there's issues, but instead of paying attention to those issues, I just want to go to sleep. And I'll deal with it later, maybe. Basically, it's just kind of living. And that's not how we are made to live. We teach ourselves how to live in the midst of the broken walls and the rubble. But we are made for so much more than that. John 10.10, Jesus is talking, and he says, I came so that they might have life and have it abundantly. 
life in excess, life overflowing. And I'm not talking about material stuff. This is not Jesus saying, I came so that they can have a bunch of stuff. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I came so that you can have life abundantly. You can have joy. You can have life focused on me that is a life fulfilled, a life living into the purpose and place that you have been called, living and doing the things you were made to do by God because he gave each of us specific things to be doing. Not just surviving, but thriving. That's what we are called to do. That's how we are called to live. And at the time, Jerusalem was not doing that. They lived in a constant state of, this is just the way it's always been. And we can't do anything about it. Now, how does Nehemiah respond? Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He sits and he weeps and he fasts and he prays. This is an interesting response for Nehemiah. I want you to look, skip down to uh, verse 11, the very end of this chapter, the very last sentence of this chapter. Now I was cupbearer to the king. It's a great cliffhanger, right? The end of the chapter. Now I was cupbearer to the king, dot, dot, dot. Um, This is what Nehemiah's role was. He was the cupbearer for the king. He lived in the king's court, the king of Persia. They ran everything. Pretty much, if you were living, you were living under Persian rule at this time. They were in charge of everything, and they will be for a very long time in history up until Rome shows up, and then we got some issues. But Persia is in charge, and he is in the cupbearer, he is in the role of cupbearer. That means he tasted all of the food the king ate. Whatever the king ate, whatever the king drank, he ate, he drank to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He did it first. Kings ate well, they drank well. He was living the high life. Nehemiah was a trusted part of the king's court. If you're the cupbearer, the king's got to trust you, right? Because if you lie and fake, or you're part of some you know, insurrection to get the king killed, it's real easy. You just pretend to eat some food, it's poison, the guy eats it, he's dead, and then you're in trouble because everyone's going to know you lied. But he is the most important person to the king. He's trusted. He's well-known. He's well-rewarded. Nehemiah is nowhere near Jerusalem. These broken walls have no effect on him. But he hears the report, and it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart because the city was not functioning the way it should be. It wasn't being a beacon of light to people. It wasn't being the city of God that it was intended to be. It just sort of was. And it broke Nehemiah's heart. He was wrecked by the fact that the place where people were supposed to know, this is where God dwells, this is where God's people dwell, kind of just sort of was. And it broke his heart. And so how does he respond? He, he takes a couple of days and he lets it sink in. And he mourns. And he cries. And he prays. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay that when life throw something big and heavy at you, you don't have to put on the smiley happy face. It's okay to let life sink in and to mourn and to sit in that for a little while. 
I know in today's world we don't like to do that. We don't like to focus on the negative. Anything that makes us uncomfortable, we have a pill, a remedy, something to make us so that we don't have to be in an uncomfortable position for much longer. But for Nehemiah, it was, I, I need to just sit and dwell on this. And he mourns. It's okay to be in a time of challenge and hardship, and it's okay to let things linger. But ultimately, what does he do? He prays and he fasts. He takes those feelings, he takes that energy, and he aims it towards God. He directed his time and energy towards God, and he prays. And one of his many prayers that he prayed for those days is written down here, and it's the rest of this chapter. I want to read it, and then we're going to make a few observations about his prayer. So starting in verse 5. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. few observations. How does Nehemiah start this prayer? He starts with admiring who God is. God of heaven, great and awesome are you. The word awesome, yes, the word awesome comes from Hebrew. The word is Yahweh. Say Yahweh. You guys know Hebrew. Boom. The word means to be feared, to inspire awe. God, you are great. You inspire awe in us. He remembers that God is keeps his commandments, and he is faithful. He is always faithful. We did the background to get us up to Nehemiah, right? And God was faithful through that entire journey. That story continues through Nehemiah, through the prophets, all the way that if you're in your Bibles, you get to the end of the Old Testament, there's one page that says New Testament. You turn it in there, you find out there's a baby born in Bethlehem. When he cries, everything changes because God is faithful and he sends his son Jesus to us. God is always faithful. Nehemiah doesn't even get to know that. He doesn't even get to know that Jesus is going to come, turn everything sideways, die on a cross, pay the penalty for our sins, and give us new life. Nehemiah knows this much of the story. And he still says, God, you are faithful. You are always faithful. I can trust you. I know that you are good. And then what does he do? He confesses sins. He says, God, you are good and awesome. You are faithful and just and God, we have sinned. We have gotten into this mess on our own. You told us that if we, were fo- if we followed you, you would take care of us. And if we rebelled against you, you would scatter us. And now we're scattered. He confesses his own sins and the people's. He acknowledges that there are consequences for sin. 
even for Christians, when we sin, when we make poor decisions, there are consequences. Yes, for Christians, if you sin, there is always forgiveness. There is always grace. And you are not bound and condemned to death and hell. But there are still consequences for your sin, right? There are still consequences when we make poor decisions on this earth. And then what does he do? He confesses sin and then he prays scripture. We heard it in the call to worship, Deuteronomy. It's also in Leviticus 26. Nehemiah prays and he prays back the words of God to him. Praying scripture is great. It is a great way to pray. If prayer is something that is hard for you, if it's something that you just, it's tough to stay focused, it's tough to get into, crack open a psalm. Crack open some part of the Bible and use that as your prayer. God, God delights in you cracking open the Bible and praying back to him his words. He hears that. He acknowledges that. He, he delights in it. Praying scripture is a great way for inspiration for your prayers. It's a great way to pray into God's will. Because you know it's God's will because it's in the book. Nehemiah prays scripture back to God. And it's after all of this. It's after he acknowledges, God, you are good. You are great and awesome. God, you are faithful. You have never abandoned us. God, I have sinned. I have fallen short. Our people have fallen short. God, and he prays back scripture. And it's after all of those steps that he finally says, God, grant your servant favor. It's only after all of those steps that he says, hey God, this is, this is why I'm coming to you. This is, what, this is what I need. Grant me favor. He prays for the favor in the task at hand. Do you guys get the sense that this prayer is a very thought out and developed prayer, right? This is not just one of those like Hail Mary, God get me to work on time kind of prayers. This is a very developed, very thought out prayer. This is the prayer of a man who prays and speaks with God often. This is the prayer of a man who has a relationship with God. He knows how to pray. He knows the importance of prayer. Prayer is half the conversation with God. That's how we communicate to him. And he communicates to us through this. If it's one-sided on either way, that relationship, right? Any friendship, any relationship, if it's just you talking all the time, the other person is going to get real bored real quick. You've got to have back-and-forth dialogue to build a relationship. Prayer is the way that we have back-and-forth dialogue with God. It's how we communicate with God. This prayer from Nehemiah is the prayer of a man who knew the importance of having a relationship with God. So after this time, after he mourns and he weeps and he prays and he fasts, he begins to develop a plan. Nehemiah begins to develop a way to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. But building a wall takes time. And we're going to see that over the next couple of weeks. The first half of this book is about Nehemiah going about the business of building the wall of Jerusalem. He ends up going to survey the scene. He's got to figure out what needs to get replaced, what needs to get just totally destroyed. What's the situation like? He's got to acquire resources and money. He's got to get people to help him build the wall. This is not the story of Nehemiah building the wall of Jerusalem by himself. It's a team effort. It's a process and it takes time. This book stood out to me as I was thinking about what's the first thing I want us to study together. This one stood out to me because I thought about 
where we are and where Nehemiah was. And I think that we're in some very similar situations. I think that we can identify as a group, as a community, with Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah is passionate to see Jerusalem function at its highest level. To see it thriving. And that's what we want for CF, isn't it? We want this place to be thriving, to be working at its highest level possible. That this community is a beacon of light to people. He wants people to know that Jerusalem is where God's people dwell. Where they can go and they can find rest. They can find hospitality. They know this is where God's people dwell. And that's our hope for this church in this neighborhood. That people in this neighborhood, when they pass by, when they are in struggles, when they are in trials in their life, they know they can show up here and they can find some hope. They can find some rest, some hospitality. They can know that God's people dwell here. That's what I want for this place. That's what I want to see us be. We want the same things for CF as Nehemiah wanted for Jerusalem. But it takes time. Building that wall takes time. It takes a plan. It takes people. It takes resources. It takes energy. It takes that scary W word, work. It's going to take some steps. But that's where we are right now. We are in this midst of getting to build something new. To get to build something awesome. And Nehemiah didn't wake up one day and have the blueprints in his brain for what this wall was going to look like. He planned. He talked with people. He got to dream and, and, and have a vision for it. He got to hear other people's dreams. Out of the midst of what was, this is just the way it's always been. Out of the midst of, these walls have been down for 70 years. They got to embark on a big project together. They got to be part of doing something new and great together. And that's where we're at right now. We get to build. We get to dream. We get to do something awesome here. And I am so excited about it. So here's the deal. I want to give you, we're going to end with a couple of things. I want to drink some water. And I want to give you guys a little insight, some things we have coming up over the next couple of weeks and months. Um, yeah, so let's just go through it. We'll talk about it as we go. So first thing, we're here. Sarah and I are here. We moved in. Yeah. Move-tastic is the best. Thank you. Yeah. If you guys got to move, Move-tastic Moving Company. They're awesome. Because um, if it wasn't for them, I'd still be lifting stuff upstairs. Uh, we're here. We're like 99% moved in. We're unpacking. Um, but we're here. We're in the city. We're in the neighborhood. This is where we're at. Come knock on our door. Don't do it at 2 a.m. I'm sleeping. But come knock on our door. Come say hey. We got a cool glider swing thing on the porch we can sit at and drink tea. Because that's a thing. Um, so come say hi. That email, pastortimcf at gmail.com. That is my email. Get a hold of me. Reach out. Say hey. Let's set up some time to get together. That phone number. A bunch of people don't even know this. That phone number, 312-767-7307. That is my personal phone number. That is my office line, okay? Give me a call. Let's hang out. Let's set up. Because here's the deal. This doesn't work if we don't have relationships, if we don't get to know each other. I want to hear stories. I want to know your dreams. I want to know your passions. What gets you excited? What gets you out of bed in the morning? So you got to give me a call. And that doesn't mean you have to do all the work and reach out to me or I'm not going to reach out to you. I'm going to start calling. Let me get settled. I'm going to start calling. I'm going to start setting up coffee dates. You have been warned. 
I'm coming. We're hanging out. That's it. We're hanging out. Okay? But these are contact points for me. Use them. Get a hold of me. Please, just come knock on the door if the other ones don't work. All right? Uh, next one. Yes. Chats with Pastor Tim. Also on the slides and on the chalkboard, it says town hall meeting. Same difference. Um, this Wednesday, the 14th at 7 p.m., and then next Thursday, the 22nd, also at 7 p.m., here. We're going to have town hall meeting-esque. Um, basically, the point of these is for you and me to sit down. And let's start thinking about what is CF... What, what do we want CF to be known for? What are we passionate about? What's the thing that gets us excited? What's the thing that three years, five years down the road, when somebody says, hey, I want to go check out that church Christian fellowship in Roscoe Village, what are they about? What's the, what, are the, what are the things that they really love? What are people going to say? What are the things that you really want to be about? The things that you've always wanted to think, man, it'd be cool if we did this. Let's talk about it. We're not going to like cure cancer on these nights. We're not going to like make life-changing decisions. But these are like brainstorm sessions, okay? I'm a big fan of phase 10 planning. Stole this from my buddy Adam. Basically, I like thinking about if we had unlimited money, unlimited resources, unlimited people, what's something we would want to do, okay? Big picture idea. And then let's take those big ideas and let's say, okay, well, we have this much money. We have this many people committed. We have this much time this much building space, and we funnel that down and we make it actually something functional, okay? So I want to I hear your ideas. I want to hear the things that get you excited. I want to know what you guys want to be about. For, you, for those of you who were here last week, we talked about running the race together. It's let us, not let me, not let me and the elders, not let me and the leadership team. It's let us. This is a team effort. Many of you guys have been here much, much longer than I have. Everyone has been here much, much longer than I have. <laughs> you know what you want this place to be about. You know what this neighborhood needs. You know what you would love to see. Tell me. Let's talk. Let's dream. Let's build something. Okay? So we're going to do one this Wednesday. If you can't come to that one, next Thursday. Okay? If you can't come to either one, then we need to get together and hang out. If you want to come to both, you can. Um, but we're going to do two of these. All right, first one, uh, that Wednesday one, we might be meeting upstairs. We'll figure it out. Um, but we're going to be here Wednesday, 7 o'clock. Next Thursday, 7 o'clock. Come with ideas. We'll have like a whiteboard or something. I'll record it. It'll be awesome. Okay? Cool? We're all good? Awesome. Moving forward. Next one. Potluck prayer. Friday, this Friday, 6 p.m. I talked about it last week. There was an email out. You're going to hear it again in announcements in like five minutes. Potluck prayer. This is something that is going to be part of our regular rhythm as a church. Once a month, we're going to get together, we're going to bring food, we're going to eat, we're going to laugh, we're going to enjoy each other, and we're going to spend some time praying. We're going to spend some time getting together, enjoying each other, and then getting on our knees and praying. Spending time bathing this neighborhood in prayer. So this Friday night, it's at 6 p.m., dinner is going to be